Hi everybody and welcome to Scottsdale Big Book Study where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Sue L, Nancy J, Kathy M and Audrey N. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, you can contact either myself or any of the co-hosts and you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please note that our speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session which follows, that will not be recorded. And we'll post a link to the previous recordings in the chat function. We are currently on, this is week number 88, and we're starting back through the big book. We ask that if you could please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And if you can also please turn off your video if you're exercising, you're eating, or if you need to step away from the screen for any reason, please do disconnect your video. So now we will turn over to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria, and thank you very, very much. And not only thank you, but thank everyone, like Sue and Nancy and whoever, I don't know whoever else is involved in this. This is, if you're looking at this and you're on here, there's a lot more that goes on here than just me. Trust me on that one. There's a lot of people that are involved in putting this together. And I want to thank each and every one of you. And <clears throat> I want to... Uh, also say that I hope that wherever you are, it is as absolutely stunning a day as it is here in the desert this morning. It is just absolutely breathtaking. Uh, it's cooled off a bit, but it is just Chamber of Commerce weather. Anyhow, we have been talking about Bill Wilson. It's March 5th, 2022. We have been talking about Bill Wilson. Now, Bill's story is a very, very good example of everything that we need to know for step one. It's just so beautifully illustrated. And uh, it really is evidence to me that there is divine intervention in the preparation of this book. Bill comes out of World War I with lots and lots of positive attitudes. He comes in here, and if we take a look back at page one, which we'll do real briefly, page one, bottom of the page, it says 22 and a veteran of foreign wars. I went, uh, <laughs> I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. He's got lots of enthusiasm. He knows he's going to be a very successful man. But what we're going to see in the next pages, and we're going to be on page six. If you want to go to page six, that's where we're going to start. But I'm just going to back us up a little bit, as is my one that we do every week, sort of review where we were last week. Now, Bill's story is going to be a beautifully perfect illustration of the three, of the, excuse me, the two qualities of the disease and the three characteristics of the disease. What are the qualities that go into being an alcoholic? Well, you have to have a twist of the mind. The twist of the mind is in search of the effect. And what is the effect? Dr. Silkworth tells us that the effect 
is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly when I eat certain foods, French fries, egg rolls, fried food, heavy fat, sugar, candy, does something for me that it does not do for the temperate normal eater. It gives me that sense of instant ease and comfort. That is the mental twist that will focus in on how beautiful that is. The only problem is it only lasts for about nine seconds. And in the 12 and 12, Bill will call this the mental obsession. What's an obsession? It's an, obs an obsession is a thought which pushes aside all thought to the contrary, all thought to the contrary. And that's the definition of an obsession. Now, if that was all that was the problem with me, that wouldn't be so bad. Actually, what I would do is this. I would carry around M&Ms in a, like a Batman utility belt. And I'd have a Batman M&M belt. And when I got scared or I got lonely or I got whatever it is that I got, I'd pop an M&M into my mouth and I'd be fine, right? Because the M&Ms are going to give me that effect. But that's just half my problem. You see, the other half of the problem centers in my body rather than in my mind. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. But the other problem centers in the body. And what are we talking about here? Remember, Dr. Silkworth tells us any description of an alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. When I eat an M&M or I eat a Reese's peanut butter cup, or I eat a, a cow cow egg roll from Devon Avenue, or I eat GGO's pizza from Devon Avenue. Something happens in my body that is different from what happens to other normal people. What happens in my body is that that food will set me up with an actual physical craving for more of the same. And that means I cannot eat because of the allergy and I cannot keep from eating because of the twist of the mind. And if I cannot eat because of the allergy, nor can I keep from eating because of the twist of the mind that is in search of this effect, I am powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. And Bill's story is going to illustrate this perfectly perfectly. Now there's the other characteristics of the disease that came to us through a man named Richard Peabody. Richard Peabody in 1930 wrote a book called The Common Sense of Drinking. And most of the information in chapter three, more about alcoholism, chapter three is going to be the last of the chapters that's going to deal with step number one. He's going to teach me that the disease has three characteristics. It is permanent unless it's acted upon an outside spiritual awakening, not an out, a, a spiritual awakening, it is permanent, progressive, and fatal. Now, I, I misspoke there. When, I, when my brain says, talk about the spiritual awakening, the spiritual awakening will not circumvent the progressive nature of the disease. 
It can only fend off the fatal part of the disease. So if I work these steps and work them quickly and work them thoroughly and work them like my hair's on fire and work them every day for the rest of my life, I can die with the disease, but I don't have to die from the disease. I can die with the disease, but I don't have to die from the disease. So I hope we've made that distinction. And in Bill's story, we have seen the perfect illustration of his physical allergy. Remember when he was pounding on the bar, wondering how this happened and says, I might as well get good and drunk this time. And I did. What caused him to take that first drink after he had sworn to God to Lois and he had written an oath that he would never drink again? What caused him to take that first drink? The mental twist. What caused him to pound on the bar and ask himself uh, or tell himself he might as well get good and drunk this time, and he did, was the physical allergy. So we have the mind and the body conspiring to kill us, and the disease will amputate you from all kind of support that you may have. Any abuser, and this disease is a wonderful abuser, alcoholism is an abuser, compulsive overeating is an abuser, gambling, relationships, you know, sex addiction, love addiction, all these various addictions, no matter what you're addicted to, drugs, whatever it is, the first thing it does is it isolates you from support and it makes your world very, very small. And we see that in Bill's story when he says, I became a lone wolf. Given the choice between every dream he's ever dreamed since childhood and hanging on to his liquor, he makes the choice to hang on to the liquor. Now, the story that we're reading, and we're going to get to it here in just a second, but I want to remind you that this story was originally part of the back of the book. This was never intended to be in step one. But what happened was when Tom Uzzle, when Tom Uzzle and Janet Blair edited the book, Janet Blair did the text and Uzzle did the content. When Uzzle saw the story, he put it as chapter one because the purpose of it being in chapter one is part of step one. Yes, and a little later on, probably not, maybe not today, oh, maybe today, we're going to get into the history of step two. We're going to see how step two came into the program. But the reason that this is so important is for identification. So I ask myself two questions, and new people come in. And they say, well, this guy was a New Englander and I am not. And this guy was a guy and I am not. And this guy lived a long time ago and I'm still alive today and I'm different from him. Yes, there may be lots of differences between you and Bill. But if I've done anything successfully, I'm going to do the best I can to point out to you. <clears throat> Hold on. If you guys could just do me a favor, get everything in the desert to stop blooming 
to stop propagating, that would be a big favor that I would appreciate so, so much because I am just tortured and this will not let up. These allergies do not let up until June when it really gets hot here. And then I don't suffer from the allergies anymore. You just hollish from the heat, but that's okay. That's for another time. That's all right. Well, where was I? Oh, we're going to ask ourselves a question. Do I think the way Bill thinks? And do I eat the way Bill drinks? And I'm going to do the best I can to point out my identification for you. And by looking at the similarities rather than the differences, it is much easier for us to do step one. How do you do step one? You don't. Step one and two and three are conclusions of the mind. Three is a decision, but steps one and two are conclusions of the mind. There is no work in the big book that is ascribed to these steps. The only writing we have is four and eight. That's it, four and eight. And if you have to do letters in nine, then you'll have to write the letters. But there's all this is, is a conclusion of the mind. Do I think the way he thinks? Do I eat the way he drinks? And if I am honest with myself, I can relate right down the line. Now let's take a look at page six. And we've seen so far this horrendous, horrific progression of Bill's disease. And we've seen him lose everything except his wife. He has lost everything. He's lost his business of consulting on the stocks. He's lost his friends. He's lost his dignity. The disease is isolating him. And while the disease has him in the crosshairs of isolation, it will move in for the kill. Let's take a look at page six. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Now I'm going to stop after the very first sentence that I read you. And I understand I can only speak my truth. I can't speak your truth. I didn't live your truth, but I'm going to talk about me for just a minute here to give you an idea of how astounding a sentence that is for a person like me. By the time I was in my 20s, I came in here at 24, but by the time I was about 19, 20, 21 years old, my level of obesity was so horrific. My level of obesity was so horrible that I had contact dermatitis underneath the stomach that hung down almost to my knees. I had such swelling in my lower extremities. I had such swelling in the calves of my legs that by the time I was in my 20s, I had dime and penny size ulcers in the back of my legs where the pus used to run out. I didn't wear underwear. I had towels shoved between layers of flab in an attempt, a vain attempt, a failed attempt to keep the skin from rubbing together so I didn't get those horrific open wounds in my skin that are extremely painful. I could not walk. I could not stand. I broke furniture. I peed in my pants. I crapped in my pants. I had constant gas. I was eating at that time in the 1970s. 
This was not my heroin habit. This was not my hooker habit or my gambling habit or my cocaine habit. My food habit at that time was about $100 to $150 a day. In today's prices, it would probably be four or five times that much. I ate every waking moment of the day. It was not uncommon for me at that time to polish off a couple of pounds of Doritos a day. It was not uncommon for me at that time to order pizzas, two, three of them at a time. It was not uncommon for me to polish off a, Dunkin Do a dozen donuts uh, on my way to a place where I could you know, get food. This was the progression of my disease. Physically, I was a mess physically. Now I still have bubby arms, only a surgeon can, I pay the price for every piece of food that I ate in the 1960s and 70s to this and 80s to this day. I have bubby arms, only a surgeon can get rid of this. I've lost over 500 pounds. This hasn't yielded at all, not even a half an inch, a ninth of an inch it hasn't yielded. When you get old, some things just don't snap back. I have thunder thighs. Thanks, mom. But I have thunder thighs. And I was emasculated by this disease from the time I was about 13 years old. I had so much fat on my groin area that a surgeon, it, it never yielded to weight loss, no matter what I did. A surgeon had to come in and do a pubic pin to pin that flesh up against the bone. And, that, and I've had about 19 hours of plastic surgery. I could go back and get more plastic surgery. I don't want to, even if it means I have to be single the rest of my life, because it is very off-putting to women, you know, when you have all these things. That's I understand that's very off-putting. I get it. But I do not want to have more plastic surgery. It's painful. Um, you have to pay your deductibles. You you're it's it's you come home with tubes and there's no one here. And no, that I'm not doing that. I'm, I, I've had all the plastic surgery I want to have. But what I'm, why I'm relating this to you is when he says the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, it is astounding to me that I survived. It is absolutely beyond my comprehension that I was able to live with all of the things that were choking me off. I could not lay flat and breathe. I couldn't sleep in a bed because there was so much fat on my chest. I had to sleep in a chair. Now I had a lazy boy, but I still had to sleep in a chair. And what that meant was that meant that the swelling in my lower extremities, what they call acute edema, A-D-E-M-A, -E acute edema would, ex would get worse and worse and worse and worse. So the mind, the body, the disease, everything that was coursing through me was conspiring to kill me. And I will tell you this, I understand that many of you may disagree. You may be an atheist. You may be an agnostic. I'm not judging that. That's great. You're welcome here. You can recover. I believe that the only reason that I survived was because I received a miracle. Not only did I live, 
but I wanted to live. And that's probably the greater miracle that I actually wanted to live, that God didn't only help me to survive the physical onslaught of this disease, but my desire to live was not born in me until I was almost in my 30s. Even when I first came in here at age 24, I much more wanted to die than live. I knew that I was lonely beyond comprehension. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 five years old. This is a very off-putting uh, addiction. And I understand that. I understand that this is extremely off-putting. So I went on my first date with a woman when I was 35 years old. So it, it took its toll. The, my, the loneliness, the asexual life, the depravity, watching everybody else walk through marriages and relationships and jobs and financial security and thinking that I was somehow excluded because of the food, excluded because I had no discipline, excluded because I had no willpower, made me want to die a lot more than I wanted to live. And because I want to live today, I am grateful beyond measure. Even if I die today, even if I die today, at least I will die having lived for a period of a quarter of a century free of this unbelievably nightmarish disease. I have tasted life. I have been alive. I have been free. I have been a person who could walk down the street. I walk three miles a day, six days a week. I do a pool workout in the afternoon. How in the world would anybody think that that would be me walking around here for 90 minutes, walking three miles, six days a week, and I am 67 years old, going on 68. I am 67 years old. I have a more than one, but I have a uh, cardiologist that I see every six months because I have AFib. I have atrial fibrillation of the heart and it's chronic. And it, I haven't been out of AFib in 15 years, 20 years. I haven't been out of AFib. And I'm much more susceptible to stroke. So I take blood thinners and I take different things. But I have every time I visit, the doctor will give you a synopsis of what he thinks. And every time I visit, I marvel and I say a prayer to God. And I'm, I'm full of tears as I go on the elevator to go downstairs to the nutritionist and then home. It doesn't say Harlan must lose more weight. It does not mention that at all. He's fine. He's good with where I'm at. He's perfectly fine with where I'm at. And to me, that's a miracle. Doctors have terrorized me my entire life. They have screamed at my mother. They have screamed at my father. They have screamed at me. And I've told you in, in here many times, I was nine years old and I was on heavy duty amphetamines to curb my appetite. And I was bonkers from that stuff. Absolutely flipping bonkers from those amphetamines. Okay, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Before we move to the next sentence, I also want to give credibility to this. And I know this as well as I know my own name. I cannot speak to your hell 
I cannot speak to the dungeon that you lived in. I cannot speak to the horrific hell that brought you here. But I know that even if you don't relate to anything I've just said, you didn't come here on a roll. You didn't come here because things went well for you. You came here because you had a horrific, horrific situation on your hands that you could neither control nor could you cure, nor did you cause. And you were brought here by a loving God, most of the time against your will. And many of you came in and left when you heard the God word and you came back. You know, the average time between the person's first meeting and second meeting is usually about 10 years. Did you know that? Listen to the people around you. It's usually about 10 years between meeting one and meeting two. Most of the time you hear people do a lead, they'll say, I came in when I was 19, I left, and then I came back when I was 34. I came back when I was 50. So there's a long time because the ego and the mind are such that we have to try every wrong answer before we come in here and do the right answer. It's just something about our minds. You know, Dr. Um, Dr. Howard, the psychiatrist, he said to Bill that an alcoholic is an immature, sensitive rebel. They are an immature, sensitive rebel. And we rebel at the thought of doing as we're told and following directions and doing what the other people are doing. If everybody's wearing a red shirt, we want to wear a green shirt. If everybody's driving a, a Dodge, we want to drive a Chevy, whatever that may be. We are immature, sensitive rebels, and it's hard to break us down. All right, let's continue. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. So here's the Prince of Wall Street and he's stealing from his wife's purse. How the mighty have fallen. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. How many times did we point out that when he was looking at these guys jumping off the towers of high finance, he was looking down his nose at these guys for killing themselves. He thought they were fools for killing themselves. And here he is considering it because he's out of options. He doesn't know what else to do. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet that I can. You bet that I can. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. The Burnhams had a home in Vermont. That's where Bill and Lois met. And when he would drink in Vermont, they would go to New York. And when he would drink in New York, they would go to Vermont and they would convince themselves that if they were only in the other home, that maybe it would be better because they would romanticize about the city when in the country and romanticize about the country when they were in the city. And this is what they did. And she was a good little Al-Anon. She went with him and she encouraged him and she just fed right into it. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture were so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. And I remember many times sitting on the edge of the bed and 
I didn't know what else to do. And I would just cry and I would beg God for death because I couldn't go on the way I was. I had no life in the food. I had no life without the food. And I was convinced that death would be much better. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. Holy mackerel is he plastered. He's drinking gin and sedative. This guy doesn't know what world he's in after that. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. What the rocks are is he's beyond drunk. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking and I was 40 pounds underweight. He had alcoholic gastritis, which he will suffer from from the rest of, for the rest of his life, whether he's drinking or not. He will have alcoholic gastritis. And alcoholic gastritis means that when he eats food, it can be very painful for him. I have gastritis. I don't have alcoholic gastritis. But sometimes if you eat something that triggers that gastritis, it really is very painful. What you really feel like, honestly, is you feel like the top of your stomach is just going to blow up. It just expands and it gets very tight and it's very painful. So when I had gastritis, they pulled me off soda pop. They pulled me off coffee, off tea, off everything. And so far I haven't had coffee or tea or pop or any of that stuff in nine or 10 years, whatever it is. And I feel great. I just don't, I just go crazy. Me being able to comply. I mean, all the pink diets that they gave me through the years. Now this is, I'm complying. They told me what not to eat. I haven't even, I don't even know if I still have the list. I just automatically gravitate away from anything that's loaded with caffeine and loaded with that stuff. And it doesn't, and, and the gases in pop and stuff like that. And it doesn't bother me. I haven't had a gastritis attack in probably 10 years. I am. Yeah. I haven't had one in probably 10 years. Now we're on page seven. And now we are going to see the constellations of heaven start to turn we are going to see that indeed it is darkest before the dawn. Bill is in trouble. He's drinking gin and sedative. He wants to die. He wants to kill himself. He's physically in terrible, deplorable shape. He doesn't know where to turn. Now, Dorothy Wilson is going to marry Dr. Leonard Strong. And Dr. Leonard Strong is going to be a player, not only in Bill's entering the hospital, he's going to be a player, as we're going to find out in another session, about getting this book going too, the book project going too. We're going to save that though for another time. Now, Bill's mother was an osteopathic physician in Boston, Massachusetts, and Bill's brother-in-law is an osteopathic physician in Yonkers, New York. Let's see what happens here, because remember, it's always darkest before the dawn. This is 1933, April of 33, April of 33. My brother-in-law is a physician and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. 
under the soul, and this is Towns Hospital. He is going to be at Towns Hospital, 293 Central Park West, New York, New York. And he is going to come under the care of a man who had a theory about alcoholics and alcoholism. And the man's name is Dr. William Duncan Silkworth, who is the medical director of this town's hospital. And Dr. Silkworth and Bill Wilson are going to meet in April of 1933. And the world is going to be a different world because of it. This is not the whole thing, but this is going to be a major part in it. Well, let's continue. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Belladonna is actually a poison. If you consume enough of it, you're, you're going to die. It's a poisonous thing. But Dr. Towns, Charlie Towns, he did some experiments with belladonna. And what he knew is that alcoholics, when they have the delirium tremens so bad, you, these guys are, are shaking like a leaf. They look like an Airedale trying to crap out a peach pit. They're so bad. They're just shaking and shaking and shaking. Well, it's hard to get the brain to clear because you have to know that the heart is a muscle too. And the heart is susceptible to this. And if the delirium tremens affect the heart, it's likely the patient will die. So what Charlie Towns did back in 19, about 1907, 1906, is he did some experimenting with belladonna and he found that he could cut it with a chemical. And by cutting it with a chemical, he could use it not as a poison, but as a sedative. And by using this belladonna treatment, which only Towns Hospital had, Bellevue didn't have it, none of the other laughing academies, none of the other hospitals had it. But he could take this belladonna, cut it with a chemical, and these guys would calm down, stop shaking, and you could sober them up and clear their brains. Do I relate to the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I relate to the way he drinks? Yes. Do I relate to the fact that it took Herculean effort to get him to, to, to be okay? Yes. I have been hospitalized numerous times at 500 pounds and 400 pounds and 600 pounds. I have been hospitalized many, many times because of this disease. So let's take a look at what it says here. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, now this is where he's gonna describe this. This is historic. See, again, I don't wanna overstate this, but I would be remiss if I didn't say this. Without William Duncan Silkworth, the little doctor who loved drunks, without Dr. Silkworth, Bill would have died and there'd be no program because there wouldn't be the solidification of what we know today as step one. We wouldn't know the problem. So I cannot overstate that without Silkworth, 
Without his opinion in the book, there's no book. Without his intervention here, there's no program. Bill probably would have died or he would have gone to an insane asylum or been in jail or <clears throat> that's what he told Lois after. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But without Silkworth, there is no program. Understand that. This was not something where Bill met Bob and the program sprouted out their ears. It took other people to get this going and move it forward. And Silky Silkworth was a major player here, major player. Best of all, best of all, excuse me, I met a kind doctor who explained those certainly selfish and foolish. I had been seriously ill bodily, the allergy and mentally the twist. So what Bill is receiving from Silkworth, and he's not going to act on it for a while until he <clears throat> gets a solution for it, which we'll find out in the next page. Silkworth is telling him what we know today as the doctor's opinion. Step one, an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. April of 33, Towns Hospital, 293 Central Park West, New York, New York, changed the course of planet Earth. Am I in awe of God's power? Yes. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. You know, there is 161 people here today and that blows my mind that 160 people would come together to want to hear what I have to say on the big book. It's, it's quite humbling, but it's amazing when I think back on my life. But let's take a look at what he just said here. I bet that if I got to know most of you or all of you, you have done amazing things in your life. Some of you are attorneys. Some of you may be physicians, some of you are in sales, some of you are teachers, some of you are music managers, some of you are whatever you are, whether you're a housewife, whether you're a, a, a first baseman for the Cubs, whatever it is you are, you've accomplished an incredible amount with your life, I would bet. But what you're not able to do at any level is to control this, cure it, or you didn't cause it, but you cannot control this and you cannot cure this on your own. The power to overcome this disease, and we're gonna be talking about this ad nauseum in the years to come. The power of, of this disease, the, res, the resolution must come from a higher power. You have an illness, that only a spiritual experience or spiritual awakening will conquer. The power to overcome this is not within you. Stop looking for it. It's not there. Stop trying to muster it. It's not there. Stop trying to call upon it. It's not there. You don't have it. It would be like me saying to you, hey, do you have an airline ticket to Mars that I could borrow? No, because you don't have an airline ticket to Mars. It's the same folly. Stop trying to look for the solution of this in your own mind or body. Let's continue. 
my incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope for three or four months, the goose hung high. Bill will be released from the hospital in April of 33, and he will stay sober on sheer willpower for one year. And when he says for three or four months, the goose hung high, that is a symbol of prosperity. A chicken is what a poor man eats. A goose or a turkey is a symbol of prosperity. That's why Benjamin Franklin actually wanted the symbol of America to be the turkey rather than the eagle. He was against the eagle because he felt that the eagle was too warlike. It signified too, too much, uh, it was too aggressive. He wanted it to be the turkey. And um, I don't know, you know about his wisdom or no wisdom, but that when he says, Bill says, for three or four months, the goose hung high, that means he was able to stay sober and things were good. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This will be April of 1934 one year after his initial hospitalization at the town's hospital, Bill will be admitted to the hospital for the second time. Now in Pass It On and in other biographies of Bill, it notes that he was hospitalized four times. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, he is hospitalized three times. Whether he was hospitalized four times, three times, or 37 times is not going to make much of a difference. The historical accuracy aside, let's just go with what we have. Now, remember that Dr. Silkworth did not just jump to an assumption that a man or woman in front of him was an alcoholic. Some of them were heavy drinkers. Some of them were moderate drinkers. Some of them just got in trouble with drugs or alcohol, whatever it was, and some were not alcoholics. But when Bill comes back to the hospital after one year and Dr. Silkworth really has a chance to speak to Lois about Bill's year that, you know, since he's been in there, Dr. Silkworth comes to the conclusion that Bill Wilson is an alcoholic. No doctor ever told me I was a compulsive overeater. They just said I was a fat slob. No, they didn't say that. They just said I was morbidly obese. I was hospitalized one time in 1981 or 80, 81. I had been through OA before, but I was eating my head off. I was at a place called Skokie Valley Hospital. It's not called that anymore, but it was Skokie Valley Hospital. And my friends came to see me and they showed me something that I had never seen. I was in there and it said on, my, on the bed, it said extreme morbid obesity. And under the weight, it said 513. And there was a little note on there. This is not a mistake. The man weighs over 500 pounds, 
it's not a mistake because they thought people would think that it was a mistake that I was over 500 pounds and they couldn't, you know, they wanted to make sure that no one thought that it was a mistake. So can I relate to what's going on with him? You bet that I can. I returned to the hospital, April of 34. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. A wet brain is really a dry brain. Alcohol saps the hydration out of cells. That's why these guys, I'm not an alcoholic, but I, and I'm not a drinker. I've never been drunk in my life. If I've had 10 uh, alcoholic beverages in my life, that's a lot. I, I would much rather drink a McDonald's milkshake, or I would much rather drink a um, chocolate milk or something than have liquor or a Ned Log from the Red Hot Ranch on Devon Avenue. They used to have Ned Log there, that orange stuff. And I used to like that. It was real sugary and I liked it. But anyway, um, where was I going with this? Oh, I know where I was going with this. Alcohol saps the hydration out of a cell and the brain and the liver do not regenerate themselves. And what happens to these guys is they get what's called wet brain syndrome. Now, wet brain is not really a wet brain. Wet brain is a dry brain, but they become vegetables. They have to be institutionalized. They cannot be running around loose in society. They get them up in the morning. They change their diaper. They feed them. They plop them in front of the radio or the TV. And then they come and change their diaper a few hours later and they feed them lunch and they change their diaper and they feed them dinner and they change their diaper and then they go to sleep and, and they put a fresh diaper on them, you know, every couple of hours. And that's their life. They don't know anybody. They don't know anything. They don't know what day it is. It's a horrible, 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 nightmarish condition. Bill and Bill is in the bed and his head is bandaged because he ran into a tree while he was drunk. He ran into a tree. It's illustrated in the movie, Bill W. And his, the whole front of his head had to be uh, fixed up. And Silkworth was a doctor, so he took care of that. They had other doctors there, took care of it. And Bill is laying there and he's restrained. He's restrained because the madness and terror were back on him. And he hears Lois talking to Silkworth and Lois is crying. And Bill is hearing Silkworth tell Lois, I'm giving you some pamphlets for asylums that you can put Bill in. I'm gonna give you some pamphlets for some hospitals that can take him because he's either gonna die or he's gonna get wet brain. You need to institutionalize him. And Bill is very upset, but he almost welcomes the idea because he has given up. Can I relate to Bill Wilson giving up on life? You bet that I can. Can I relate to his resignation to either being institutionalized or dead? You bet that I can. Thank God for God. Thank God that God whispered on the one ember of my heart that remained unsinged by my desire to die. And he whispered on that cinder in my heart and it burst into flames. And I wanted to live for the only time in my life. 
she would have to soon she would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum they did not need to tell me bottom of page 7 i knew and almost welcomed the idea he has no more fight left in him he was a good boy he was smart he put his mind to something he could do great things and he knew it. And I knew me too. And I knew that this was not the life that God had wanted for me was to be an object of ridicule, to have children laughing at me and people laughing at me. And all I was, was an object of ridicule. And as I walked down the street, people would point and laugh and yell things at me from cars. And I was abused all the time in public. So I stayed as much as I could by myself. But eventually you've got to come out of the house and people scared me. And to some degree, they still do. People frightened me and hurt me. And to some degree, my memories of those things are what carry me through another day. That it's not the, the vista, it's not the cliff, it's not the mountain range I have yet to conquer. I look behind me and I see, look how far I've come. Look how far I have come. And it's a miracle. Could I have gotten there without holding God's hand? No flipping way, no flipping way. I believe that there is a God and it's not me. And I believe that God carried me across those things in the gentlest possible way that he could so that I could be alive today in 2022. Bottom of seven, <clears throat> and Bill was carried by a loving God and Bill was carried by a powerful God and Bill will change the world that he was born into. They did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. Top of eight, I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining the endless procession of sots. A sot is a drunk. It's an archaic term for a drunk who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in the bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. I've never read or heard a paragraph in my life that so aptly describes who I am and what I was and where I come from. And I've never so eloquently heard a paragraph that describes better step number one, that feeling of powerlessness, the feeling of hopelessness. Do I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I do. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way Bill drinks? Yes. <sighs> Do I have allergies like Bill? I don't know. I don't know if he had them or not, but damn it, I do. But anyway, it'll all be over soon. We got the rest of March, we got April, and we got May. And as soon as June, 
June, you can get temperatures here that are 118, 119, 120. That kills it right there. But it's hard for me to talk sometimes because I lose my breath. Okay, <clears throat> I got it now. Hang on one second. Okay, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Hold on just a second, because I want to give you a little history there of what happened. Now, we know that this disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal, don't we? We know that. And Bill has been hospitalized twice. He has been told by Dr. Silkworth. No, Lois has been told by Dr. Silkworth. And Lois tells him that you're, you're going to have to go into a, 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 an asylum. Now, you may have an idea in your head because you live in the 21st century of a nice treatment center and a nice hospital with nurses and doctors and beautiful food and wonderful places. Let me assure you that an insane asylum in the 1930s was the antithesis of that. And that in an insane asylum, he would have been treated like a piece of garbage that in this world for centuries, for thousands of years, there was no place to go for the alcoholic. Men were put in these places against their will when they had committed no crime. They were locked up for alcoholism. They were ostracized by society. Some were sterilized against their will. And the women had it a hundred times worse. The women were given lobotomies many times because of their alcoholism. They were thought of as witches. They were thought of as possessed, loose women. And they were given hysterectomies against their will so they could not pass on their genes. And they were institutionalized for their alcoholism and ostracized in more brutal ways than the men for thousands of years. So don't take for granted what we have here. I talked about this last night. We talked about this on Vision this week, that the, this book, when it entered the dark world of the alcoholic, changed everything. But let's go back to Armistice Day. Now, Bill is going to be released from the hospital in April of 1934. So Armistice Day is November 11th. You would call it Veterans Day today. Veterans Day and Armistice Day are the same thing. When World War I ended, they called it the Armistice. And the Armistice was November 11th. And... Today, they call it Veterans Day, but let's go back to that. Bill gets up, the market is closed, everything's closed. He says to Lois, Lois, it's one of the last beautiful days of 1934. I want to go golfing. Can I have some money? So here's the Prince of Wall Street asking his wife for a couple of dollars to go golfing. So he gets on a public bus and he's going to take this bus to the end of the line and go golfing. And a man gets on the bus. Now, you couldn't do this today without police intervention. A man gets on the bus with a rifle, a shotgun, and he's going to the same stop 
because he's going to do some skeet shooting and he's got his shotgun with him. Okay. And they're talking and Bill is telling him and all this, you know, who he is and he's going to go golfing. And this guy says, yeah, I'm going to go do some skeet shooting. And the bus has an accident. The bus hits a car. So they have to wait on the bus while another bus is, is brought over to take them to the next stop. And Bill and this guy decide they're going to go get some lunch while they're waiting. They go into a place and they, they're going to have some lunch. And the guy, or, the guy that Bill is with orders a beer and says to Bill, would you like one? And Bill says, no, 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 I don't want a beer. No, no, I'm okay. And he starts to tell this guy that he's an alcoholic. And he's been in the hospital twice. And that Silkworth told him that if he didn't stop drinking, he's going to get wet brain and he's going to die. Can I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I can. Wait for the rest of the story. Now, this is Armistice Day, 1934. And that means what are they celebrating? World War II hadn't happened yet. They're celebrating the end of World War I. And this big Irish bartender, according to Bill, the guy was Irish. I wasn't there. I don't know. I wasn't born yet. The guy comes out with a couple of beers and he says, hey, are you guys veterans? Bill was a veteran. Bill was in the First World War. And he says to the other guy, hey, are you a veteran? And the guy says, yeah. Remember, this is in the days of conscripted, conscripted armies. It was draft. You couldn't, you couldn't not be in the army unless there was something wrong with you physically or mentally or something. Everybody was draftable. Oh, if you were a man over the age of 18, you went in the service. Unless there was something really wrong there, you went in the service. And Bill Wilson is looking at this free drink and he knocks it down. And the guy says, wait a minute, what are you doing? Are you crazy after everything that you told me? And Bill Wilson says, yes, I am crazy. And on November 11th, 1934, Bill will begin what will be the last debauch, the last bender of his life with no more thought than that after everything bill had said to the guy after everything he talked about to the guy he takes this free drink from this bill described it i'm not this irish bartender knocks it down and you can guess the rest he never made it to golf he never made it to anything he's drunk and he comes back and there's Lois, and she's crying because he is drunk again. Do I relate to Bill Wilson? You bet I do. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Yes. Do I eat the way he drinks? Yes. I don't have any trouble relating to him. Am I an alcoholic? No. Do, was I from Vermont? No. Was I married to Lois? No. But I and me and Bill were kindred spirits. We might as well be twins. We think alike and we binge alike and we are powerless over our drugs of no choice. You'll never hear me say food is my drug of choice because if I could have chosen it, I would have chosen not to eat it when I was four. But my drug of no choice is food. My drug of no choice is sugar and flour 
and all that other stuff that fried foods and all this other stuff that I would have killed myself to get at. Those are my drugs of no choice. Let's finish the paragraph. We're almost out of time. On Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty, not the suspicion, the certainty, and they did with me too, that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end, how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. A debauch is a binge. I was soon to be catapulted. I love that Im imagery, catapulted, he's zooming right through the air. And he's gonna, uh, uh, the fourth dimension of existence. The three dimensions are width, height, and depth. The fourth dimension is the dimension of the spirit, the dimension of God. I was to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. What a beautiful promise. And what I have found is not only is this disease progressive, but the recovery is progressive as well. I have a more wonderful life. Yes, it's not exactly what I would have written the script. Do I wish I had a wife? Yes. Do I wish I could retire? Yes. Do I wish I was the first baseman for the Cubs or the quarterback for the Bears? Yes. But the bottom line is, is that I have a life that not only is good, but continues to get better and better and better and better as time goes on in areas that have nothing to do with food and weight. So we have a situation where the disease is permanent, progressive and fatal and the recovery is progressive and life-giving. But it's only there while I work at it because gravity will pull me back into the teeth of the disease. God will lift me up. So whatever I do will determine the direction. I'm either going to go up toward God, or I'm going to go down to the, to the teeth of a Reese's peanut butter cup, and there's no middle ground. In everything I do today, everywhere I go, everything I say, the way I treat everybody I meet, I am, and including myself, I am either moving toward the disease or moving toward the recovery, and there's no middle ground. There is no vacation. There's no time off. I don't want to hear this. My sponsor is out of town for two weeks. What do you mean your sponsor is out of town for two weeks? Are you out of your mind? What do you mean for two weeks this person is not going to be affected by this disease? I don't care where I am. I've traveled this country. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been up and back and up and down. I take my sponsees calls every single day. Okay, I'm looking at the time and I'm shocked that it's already this late. Next week, be here because we're going to talk next week about the history of step two. And we're going to see how a group of people that have no concern about alcoholism, a bunch of people called the Oxford Group Movement, is going to change the world forever. And we're going to be talking about a man named Edwin Ebby Thatcher. And we're going to see 
how Ebby and Bill are going to conspire to bring this program of recovery to life. And then we're gonna see later on how it gets legs and moves forward. We're gonna see the meeting of the problem that we get from Silkworth and the solution that we get from the Oxford group. And next week is gonna be very historical. It's gonna be very laden with a lot of history and a lot of stuff. So come back next week and I know you won't be disappointed. Okay, before I turn it back over to Nancy or Sue or Maria or whomever, I don't know. Before